this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track. But there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. It takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. So when's the right time to step aside and let someone else run your company? I think that is the age-old question for us as founders. I mean, when you start a business, obviously your creativity, your energy, your vision are so important to get this entire you know, entity off the ground when the entire world wants you to stay put. <laughs> and there are just so many obstacles in the beginning. And it's really when a premium is placed on your creativity and your energy and your drive and, and all those assets that you have in spades. Yet once you've got the thing going and you've got revenue and you've hopefully got a bit of profit, there may be someone else out there who is better suited to grow your business beyond where you have it today. And that's when Tina Youngblood gets brought into companies. Tina is my next guest. She got brought into Pathfinder Health when the founder had gotten the business to a point of a couple million dollars in annual revenue, but just couldn't bust beyond that point. And Tina came in to make some fundamental changes. As, you, as she'll describe, she changed uh, the, you know, the product development process. She changed the culture, a little bit about sales and marketing, made some fundamental changes to the financials of the business and ultimately went on to sell the company. But I think the real nugget here is when to know when the right time to sell or leave your company is. And here to tell you how Tina diagnosed that is Tina Youngblood. Tina Youngblood, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Great to be here. Tell me a little bit about this company, Pathfinder. What do you guys do? So we are a software development company, and what we build is clinical and practice management software for therapists who treat people on the autism spectrum. So if you think about the rates of autism in the United States, especially have skyrocketed in the last 10 years or so. And it's a very pen and paper intensive industry. It's, a beha- it's applied behavioral analysis therapy is the therapy that's been scientifically proven to work to help people on the spectrum. So what we did is create an automated platform so that those therapists could collect data electronically, submit claims electronically, so they get paid faster, and they can improve the lives of the people that they serve. And so I don't know a lot about autism, but if you are treating someone with autism, there's, there's presumably an assessment uh, stage where you're trying to understand where on the spectrum they are. Mm-hmm. Did you guys offer those sort of assessment tools? We have some assessment tools. What we really focused on was post-assessment and then um, the actual therapy. So the protocols, the skills. So there are different protocols that therapists use Um, to help people acquire skills. So we automated the collection of data in that that 
realm. So yeah, it was kind of, the assessment tool itself is pretty intensive. A lot of times our clients would load that into the system and then they would use our system to create score goal plans and things for, for the people on the autism spectrum to improve their skill sets. It might help people who, who haven't experienced autism firsthand. Could you give us an example of a tool in your system that someone would develop that, that would, they would take a child through who, who is recently diagnosed with autism? Absolutely. So tying your shoes, you know, something that, that you teach your children or your children learn to do is a hundred times more complicated when the person's on the spectrum, depending on the level of severity that, that they are, that, you know, where on the spectrum they fall. And so you have to break it down into 10 steps, right? And so what, what we would do is our, our uh, software would allow the therapist to say, step one, you know, put this lace in your left hand, step two, make a loop, step three. And so by breaking it down into multiple steps, that helps the person acquire that skill, washing your hands. Again, something that may seem so routine, but if you're, nature, yeah. Yeah, if you're autistic, you might not quite understand how to do it, and they get very frustrated. So there's a second piece to the software that's behavior-related. So a lot of times people on the spectrum um, hurt themselves or they run because they get very frustrated that they can't wash their hands or tie their shoes. And so we created intervals so that they could start and stop a timer of, a child who's running and how long it lasts. And then the amount of times that they can reduce the negative behavior and increase the positive rewards around acquiring a skill, then the faster that person acquires that skill. And we automated all it, of that. So, uh, so it was an, you know, the doctor was able to, or the clinician was able to automate things. Why not just use a Google doc? Like if you were a doctor and you specialize in autism, why not just create your own Google doc? Because it sounds like everything was customized anyways. Did, maybe I'm not understanding it. What, what made you guys different than them creating their own, I don't know, Word document or Google document? Well, actually a lot of them did. Um, so the difference is in an Excel spreadsheet, for example, because it's very data driven, right? So think about an Excel spreadsheet where you have to record the number of times a certain behavior occurred or how long it took for a skill to be acquired. And there were different parts to the treatment that's very complex in terms of describing it, but you have to be able to um, perform the task in three different environments, meaning one at school, one at home, one in the clinic with three different people, because that means that it's really embedded and it's not just something that's, that's happening in one environment. All of that needs to get graphed and reported on so that you can show progress this is important for two reasons. One, to help the person acquire the skills faster. And in an Excel spreadsheet, you have to record it all, write your formulas yourself, right? Create the graphs. And then the insurance companies, in 2004, by the way, just one quick statistic, in 2004, zero states, no states in the United States required companies, insurance companies, to pay for this type of therapy. But in the year 2020, 48 do. So, wow. but insurance companies, Blue Cross and Blue Shield or United Healthcare or whatever they may be, Aetna, in order to, to, for the insurance company to continue to pay for the therapy, the therapist has to show progress. And so a lot of what our software did was graphing and reporting, which again, you can do in an in Excel spreadsheet. It just takes a lot longer to do. Um, and so you can attach graphs that show progress to the insurance company that shows them that the therapy is working. Got it. And what was your business model? How did you charge for the software? 
it was software as a service. So SaaS is a, is a term that software people will understand. We had a subscription to it. So it was a monthly, a lot of times it was an annual subscription, but companies could, could pay for an annual. Sometimes we did two years, but it's, sometimes it was month to month. And so it was a subscription to get access to our software. Um, and then our customer success team had some clinicians as part of that. And so they got kind of a, um, they, they got software, but they also got support from clinicians who understood ABA therapy, applied behavior analysis therapy. And so that was, we, we did that. And we also did some consulting work as well. So if you had a startup practice that needed help getting credentialed with the insurance company or how do I set up a business, right, an, an ABA business, sure. we also sold some consulting services as well. And so what would the size be of a typical customer? Like, are we talking massive clinics or kind of small, mid-sized clinics? All, all across the board. Um, I okay. think our, our niche was the under 50 employees. So it, it, under 50 employees is, was pretty much our sweet spot. Um, and it's, it's very intensive therapy. So in a lot of cases, the, the, technici- or the therapist was one-on-one with the child. So again, depending on the size of the clinic and, and depending on the severity of the, of the treatment plan, um, it's, it's very much a one-to-one situation. So one therapist equals one, one client. But we had some as big as 600 um, patients. Wow. So we had some that were very, very large. Uh, again, most of ours were within the fit, were below 50 employees. So somewhere around 35 to 50 patients was our, was our basics. Um, How'd you guys sell it? We sold it the old-fashioned way. Um, we sold it by attending conferences because this is, again, an industry that's growing. Um, so we sold it by, by attending conferences and doing demos. We sold it with a, with a call center here in Kansas City uh, that just called on clinics. And a lot of it was also word of mouth. So this is a, an industry that's growing. It's also a very tight-knit community. So Facebook, believe it or not, was often a refer- good referral source for us. Because they create groups and they say, "Who do you oh, use?" Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, it was yeah. a, it was a combination of all those things. And, and my understanding is you didn't actually start the company, but you joined it. Maybe talk a little bit about where it had it was when you joined it and why you were brought on. Absolutely. So the founder of the organization, and you know this because um, you interview entrepreneurs all the time often the person that has the entrepreneurial idea and starts a company doesn't have the same skill set that's required to grow the company. It's two very different sets of DNA. And so what happened in our situation was we were um, a six-year-old startup. And that's just too, you can't be a startup after, you know, after six years. <laughs> so um, the investors, the, the board asked the CEO to step aside, the founder to step aside and bring in someone who had leadership experience and operational experience in turning companies around and growing them. And it just happened to be, I've never run a software company before, by the way. Hmm. Uh, I'm an accountant by trade, uh, accounting professor actually, um, who spent 15 years in financial services. So I've run insurance companies and claims companies and I've been in that space, but I'd never run a software company before. And it was interesting when I interviewed for the position, the chairman of the board asked me this question and made the statement, he said, you've never run a software company before. And I said, you're right. And the first time I ran an insurance company was the first time I did that too. Because here's what smart leaders know, right? They know what they don't know. So they know what questions to ask. They surround themselves with smart, talented people who have complementary skill sets. They understand the financials. I think that's a really important piece of it. You know, 
and then they challenge the status quo. Um, only phrase that gets you kicked out of my office is we've always done it that way. You know, and so, so I was brought in really to, to take a look from an objective perspective and just say, okay, what, what's broken? What needs to be fixed? How do we fix it? What does this need to look like? You know, and what do we want to be when we grow up and how do we get there? And that, that's explore, kind of the promise of it. Yeah. I want to explore this idea of um, the founder skills and what they look like versus um, kind of the, the person who is brought in to, in, in your case, really kind of build and, and, and ultimately uh, sell the company. So what would, how would you characterize the, the, the strengths of a founder versus um, a, a sort of a second generation leader like yourself? So the, the founder strengths, I believe, are, are, well, several fold. One is the creative idea, right? Like what made him say, we're going to take this on? So there was, it was knowing what was needed in the industry. It was understanding that industry. It was finding that one solution that we could differentiate ourselves from others, you know, and then it was, and it's the, the nerve to go out and try it and build mm -hmm. it. Um, that's a, it takes a lot of guts to go and borrow money or, you know, find investors to give you money um, to go try something, to go build something that didn't exist before. We were one of the so, first all-in-one solutions to the marketplace because of the founder. So creativity, boldness, courage, determination, all those attributes. Those, those sound like great attributes for any leader. Why, why did they um, have a shelf life? Or why did they, why, why did, like, why did they kind of run out of steam? Yeah, I think, I think what happens often, and certainly what happened here, when you're on that path of creativity, you sometimes take your, your eye off the financial discipline ball, right? So one of the first things I did when I came in was I looked at the financials and I said, why are we spending this money over here? Why are we doing this this way? Um, because as a founder, you're not looking for EBITDA, right? You're not looking for net income necessarily. You're looking for market share, you know, and, and how, do you, how do you go after and attack the marketplace? And, and I think a second generation leader like myself comes in and says, hang on a minute, <laughs> nothing happens until somebody sells something, right? Thomas J. Watson said, uh, famous statement, nothing happens until somebody sells something. And then the second piece that I think is second generation that it's, it's natural for me because I've come into situations like this before. My very first question is, okay, let me see the financials. I want to see the income statement. I want to see the revenue line. I want to see the expense line. I want to understand everything about that. Um, and I think that's just something that's not second nature to an entrepreneur, but certainly to somebody like me that's got experience in running companies in multiple industries. What did you see when you saw the Pino? Um, opportunities for improvement. <laughs> Can <laughs> you parse that, that for us? <laughs> How's that for politically correct? No. So one of the first, I, I did two or three things simultaneously, but one of the things I walked into was a platform that was a mess. And part of the reason it was a mess was because we were making, we were getting to market too quickly, right? So it was like, got to get this feature, got to get this done, got to get this done. So stabilizing the platform and we ended up losing data and having some serious issues with our actual software. That's a problem when you have an industry like, ABA therapy that requires data going back years, 
you know, to, again, to show improvement and to, to get claims paid. And the second thing I saw, so I was stabilizing the platform, number one, but number two, you know, the, it was not making money. It was not profitable. That's one of the reasons I was brought in. And so I looked at the financials. I took, I took almost uh, three quarters of a billion dollars of run rate cost out of the organization in four months. And we were a Sorry, small company. Three quarters of a what? Million. I thought was, you said billion. <laughs> no, 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 no. We weren't that Sorry. big. We Got were it. very. Okay. How, how big were you? Are you kind of AR, like how, how, how much revenue were you generating? When you, it was when only you about $2 million in, in run rate and top line revenue. Mm-hmm. And so to take, you know, $700,000 of costs out wow. had a huge impact. But again, I just, those are things that I could see when I walked in and maybe they were necessary at the startup phase. Maybe they were the right thing at that time, but certainly not to stabilize it the bottom line and then to grow the business. And so I took a ton of cost out and that ended up being um, a really important aspect for, you know, again, the board, I, I knew what the investors were looking for. So uh, it was kind of a mess when I got here and, and we just, we were, the CFO and I spent a lot of time together. We were very disciplined about making sure we were spending our investors money as if it was our own. What was the capital structure? Like who, who, who were the investors and, and how did, how was that structure? We were a very complex capital structure for a very small business, I have to say. Um, we had Series A preferred investors, so we had some venture capital firms in this software and behavior health space that were our two biggest investors. We had a host of others that were angel investors. So, you know, again, when the startup phase, um, you have some angel investors that come in and get you started, but then we did a Series A round. So we had some preferred shareholders who were really on the board and who were really driving the business at the time I was brought in. Got it. And, and what was your, um, what's the, what's what I'm, I'm trying to formulate the question. What was your sense or feeling of the dynamic between the founder and the investors at the time you were interviewing? Um, there was a, it was a good relationship. And, and I think the founder realized he needed me. He needed someone to come in and help. Um, you know, I'm sure it was tough at the, at the, you know, at the beginning. I'm certain it was when they started having the conversation about replacing him. But by the time we got to the interviewing process and with me and the board, he knew that it was time and he knew that he couldn't be the person to take the company to the next level. Again, he's very much a startup guy. He's creative. He's got an entrepreneurial spirit. He, and he's, he's good at finding it, going, building it. And then he wants to move on to the next fun thing. If you and I were, you know, at a restaurant and we were having lunch and I, I was a founder and you were sort of providing advice to me and, and I asked you, how do I know when it's time? How do I know when, you know, the, I'm, the business has gone beyond my skill set. What, what sorts of advice would you give me in order to figure out whether I'm the best one to run my company or, or I should bring in a hired gun? Um, great question and a tough one. I think it, it's probably going to be dependent on the person. So I'll, I won't generalize, um, but I'll, I'll say this. If you're still a startup uh, six to eight years in, that's a, that's a clear signal. If you're not clearly profitable or clearly have a, a, a leading market share, if you're not at a point where um, you're generating the return that your investors expect, 
it's time for you to think about somebody else coming in. So I think that was probably the biggest thing for our founder was knowing that we had spun our, it was like treading water almost. When you get to a point in your business where you feel like you're just treading water, you're not growing, you're not uh, gaining market share, you're not beating your competitors. I think it's time to really sit back and go, am I the right person to lead this organization into the future? And I think that was the aha moment for him. And how did they recruit you? Because you've run much larger companies. I'm curious to know what they said or did to say, come in and run this relatively small business. It's funny. That was the other question that the chairman of the board asked me in the interview was, you know, I've run $4 billion businesses. Um, Why? Why would this is, this is a small, small M lowercase M. Why would I want to do it? And I answered it two, two different ways. Well, there were, there was a two part answer to that. And one very quite frankly is it's never been about the size of the income statement. It's always been about the work for me. I don't care if it's 4 billion or 4 million. The work is what drew me to it. It needed a financial turnaround. It needed a cultural turnaround. Culture is everything, by the way. It's everything. You know, it's not a thing. It's everything. It needed a cultural turnaround. It needed a boost of leadership and, 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 and energy. And, and that's always been what drew me to every business I've ever run has been what, what needs. I like to fix things. You know? So if it's broken and it needs fixed, I love to come in and figure that stuff out and solve the puzzle. And the second one was a very personal reason. Um, I had a special needs brother who was born when I was seven. Um, he had cataracts on both of his eyes and, and had a lot of physical ailments. But as I've been reflecting back and learning about this, this business, I'm pretty sure he was on the spectrum as well. Um, he passed away when he was 20, but he was never supposed to live to 12. So he was a blessing every day. But I promised myself, I took a year off uh, in 2017. I wasn't having fun anymore at my last role. And I literally just said, I'm done for a while. And I promised myself I wouldn't go back to work unless I could live a mission-driven life, Hmm. you know, and really have a purpose. And he's been a big part of that. And so this was my opportunity to take my experience and what I know and apply it to something that I'm, you know, again, I'm certain that when Micah was, alive. Had we known about ABA therapy at the time, um, I'm pretty sure he was on the spectrum and and would have benefited from it. So it was just that perfect opportunity to take, to give, um, you know, and then, and to, to give back in another way than just simply, you know, being the CEO. Well, that's helpful. And thank you for sharing that, that personal experience. What what did you find when you got into the business? When, when you, you first sort of arrived, what, what, what were uh, the first moves that you made? First move that, that I made was to um, put some business perspective to the product ownership role. So in software development, product owner is, you know, is kind of a key role because that's the person that helps set the strategy and make decisions about what you will build and what you won't build um, and about when you're going to build it and how you're going to build it. And one of the first things I walked into and found out was that we were putting out new releases every two weeks and this is software. This is complex. You can't. And so it was going out and it wasn't quality tested. There were bug, too many bugs. It's software. So there are always going to be bugs. But the first thing I did was I said, we're going to quarterly releases, full stop. You know, I don't have to be a software developer to know that it takes more than two weeks to build a feature. So the first thing we did was slow down on releases and we went to quarterly. And I put a product owner in place with a business liaison. So I took some people from the business that understood claims and that understood ABA therapy 
and I put them together with the software engineers and said, you now own this product. That was a really important piece of the stabilizing of the platform. It made the product better as a result. What did the investors want you to do? Because I mean, you know, a lot of venture capitalists would be, you know, you know, swinging for the fences, right? They would, they would invest with the view that it's got to be a sort of unicorn or it's not worth our time. What did, what did they want you to do? It, one of the greatest, um, one of the greatest joys in this, this role for me, they didn't tell me what to do. And I love them for that. I got very lucky with this group because what they said was clean sheet of paper. There are no sacred cows and there are, you know, there's no big directive here. We, they trusted me to come in and figure it out. One of the things I promised them was in 30 days, you'll have a talent assessment in 60 days. You know, you'll have a sense of where, where the product sits in 90 days. I'll lay out my strategic plan for you. And I held you know, myself accountable to those things. They just wanted me to come in figure it out, like I said, and, and, and fix it and then, and ultimately sell it because it was for them, the, the goal. So they did want you to sell. They were clear about that. Um, yeah, it became pretty clear um, when I was brought on that uh, had I come on earlier, it might've been a different situ- a scenario, but because when I was brought in um, to turn it around, it was really at the point that they were ready to exit. They'd already been in it for four years and for venture capitalists, that's a lifetime. Four years is a mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. And so, um, so you made a change to the product release schedule. Mm-hmm. How would you characterize the culture when you arrived? Um, the culture was, I would call it timid. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there was some uncertainty about, so the founder, the founder, we were actually a result of two companies coming together. So the founder of Pathfinder um, wrote the clinical product. They merged with a claims management product to create Pathfinder Health Innovations. And so the two founders were not always aligned in, mm-hmm. in the strategic thinking. And so when I walked in, the culture was, we're not exactly sure. They were looking at their shoes a little bit when I walked in. Um, There was not a lot of teamwork. I would say it it was kind of a command and control environment. And that's just not my style. But it was very much a culture of, um, they went through a lot of of chief technology officers, I'll just put it that way. So I would say the culture needed a big boost of energy it needed um, some reality check, um, and, and that's, that's not always easy to do. But in, in my case, I was lucky enough that they bought in pretty quickly after, after I became the CEO. They all bought in. Did the founders remain as shareholders and investors during your tenure? They did. Okay. Um, I've got a ton of questions. But how many employees at this time, roughly? About uh, less than 50, about 30, 35. Okay. And... And so what did you do to change the culture? Um, you know, I, I love that question and it's an, it's an impossible question to answer. Um, in some ways you kind of have to live through it. One of the things I did is lead by example. I, I was, I, I believe in honest, transparent communication. Um, I won't lie to you. I won't hold anything. I don't, I can't always tell everybody everything, right? Cause I do have shareholders, but I was pretty honest and I was pretty transparent in my communications and I'm a genuine person. I I think 
they saw that in me that, um, again, I know what I don't know. So there's no ego in it. And I would ask questions and I was learning with them at the same time that I was helping steer. And I would, but when I asked a question, I really meant it as a question, right? It wasn't like, I didn't come in with all the answers, but I, and I know a couple things. I know financial models don't turn companies around. People do. And so I invested a lot in my people. I, I met every single person. Um, and we had two offices, one in Phoenix and one here in my first 30 days. And I said, pretend we're in a Clint Eastwood movie, uh, movie called the good, the bad and the ugly right? Start with the good. Tell me the good. You know, tell me what's not so good. And then if there's something that you need to tell me that's ugly, tell me. Let's just talk about it. And that really went a long way, I think, with to get them all on board that I was, I was here to help and I was really here to turn this business around. But I wasn't going to do it by myself. I, you know, I do it with a team. Got it. Got it. That's helpful for sure. What was, um, what were the ground rules you put in place with the founder or founders um, to ensure they didn't undermine your authority? Um, wow, that's a good one. Uh, I think I respected the founder from the outset and there was a mutual respect that I was, I'm the new person in charge, um, but I respected where the business came from. I respected his, his part in it. Um, and when I made a decision that was against something, it was, I don't, never really got any pushback. I really didn't. Um, he didn't undermine me at all. And in fact, there was a time when it, he needed to exit and, and we worked through that. And again, the messaging and, and the respect that I had for him um, made it a very easy, it made it an easy move. When you say he, he needed to exit, what, what do you mean? Exit as a shareholder or exit as day-to-day -day manager? As an employee. Yeah, as, as an employee. employee. So there was a point when we, we needed to, you know, again, I was working on what's best for the business and how to add the most value to it. Um, and there, I, the business just couldn't support um, the role that, that he was playing. And so it was corporate development role, which is really, it was really around R&D, research and development. And we just weren't at a point where we could really say we wanted to invest in research and development. That wasn't what I was brought on board to do. So it ultimately led to his going to go do something else. And it was, um, it was good for everyone, and including him. And I think the way we handled that was really important um, because, again, I, I respected him and where he was. He knew that I was the person that was going to you know, save the business ultimately. And so we, we agreed pretty early on that, that when that decision, if it needed to be made, um, you know, he and I would talk about it first, and we did. Got it. So you changed some fundamental things in the company. You changed the product release cycle, um, the culture, uh, you stabilized the platform, sales and marketing. Um, what were the impact of, of those changes on the financials of the company? Pretty significant. I mean, it, again, we went to seven months into my tenure, the board came to me and said, you know what, you've done a great job of getting this, everything where we want it to be. Let's go find a buyer. And so we had a pretty significant impact on the financials, which led us, which made us an attractive target for the ultimate uh, new owners of the business. Which what was the I biggest? Said, so it sounds like the biggest impact was on the, the profitability of the company as opposed mm -hmm. to the top line revenue. Yes, for sure. I, I think if I think if I had it to do over again, there would have been a bigger impact on the top line. Um, Why? And, and I know we want to talk about that, but but I think it was it was really in 
the expense side of the of this of the house we really got that and we stabilized the platform and we were a product we were the best in the market even though we were small our platform was is was better than anyone else's in the market in terms of its own stability some of the features that we created and and the product was attractive so i think those two things were what really had the greatest impact so let's turn to the sale now so you're you make the decision that it's it, you've you've cleaned up the 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 operations. The financials are are much healthier. Um, what did you do next? What what did you do to get on your front foot to to start proactively selling the company? Um, I worked. I, I went to my through my network. To be quite honest, one of the questions I was also asked by the board in the interview process is if I had private equity connections, and I did. Uh, I had several, and I also, because of, of our space being behavioral health, which has a ton of private equity uh, money being thrown at it right now, we had been approached by several firms before my tenure, and certainly as soon as I arrived, that were interested in the business, and I literally reached out, started reaching out to them and saying, okay, we're ready, um, and, and I had three or four really great conversations with legitimate potential buyers in the process to get started. But that, again, how, part of it was my network. And how were you thinking about valuation? Like, what were you using a valuation sort of uh, rule of thumb for a company like yours? What was what, what was your sense of value? Um, yeah, so companies like ours typically trade on a multiple of multiple revenue, of, of revenue and annual recurring revenue. So ARR is kind of a big deal because it is software. It's not necessarily you know, net income, it's really, it's really top line. So it's a multiple of revenue. In our case, I felt like a big part of our valuation, however, was in our product roadmap and some of the work that we were doing to, uh, on the product itself and not just, it had not come to fruition yet. So I spent a lot of time on messaging and when I was talking with potential buyers, they had to give us credit or value for what was to come, not necessarily what had already happened. And that was, hmm. that was a big part of the cell and, and a big part of my role is it was in that messaging and, and making, making that point that it wasn't just about ARR. It had to be about the value that was going to come. How did you make that case? Because a lot of buyers would say, yeah, but I mean, that team, that's, there's a lot of operational risk involved in, in bringing that to life. I mean, that's going to be our job to bring that product roadmap to life. I mean, you know, now that you've told us what your product roadmap is, we can just basically go, you know, buy your competitor and, and yeah. build out those same features. How did you make the case that they should pay for that? It, one of the things that I learned pretty quickly um, was that no one had figured it out in this industry, um, that there was a lot of opportunity for something like our platform to 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 be put into the marketplace with the right ownership and, and make a difference, you know, in, in terms of competitive positioning. Um, it, part of it was, I, well, I didn't, ex I didn't actually say everything up front, right? I had to keep some of it, you know, in my pocket to make sure that I had the right potential buyers in mind for that very reason. Cause you want to avoid just showing everything, right? Opening sure. the hood and, and, and letting everything be visible. So part of it was that, um, and part of it was in the way that we had competed and won in, in a very short period of time on a key, couple of key uh, players that were part of the value as well to show that what we were doing was making a difference in the marketplace. And then quite honestly, one of the things I did at the end of the day 
when we got down to that three or four real legitimate buyers, we demoed the system for them. I was confident enough in what our team had built. I go, let me show you our platform. Let me show you our product and why it's better. And that was, and ultimately, that, that kind of sold it. Uh, that, that, that solidified that message that we have something here um, that's pretty good and that can be taken to the next level with the right next ownership group. Got it. Okay. So you're thinking it's, it's your company is worth a multiple of revenue and that that multiple may be actually a little higher because of this product roadmap and what you've got sort of in the, in the hopper in the future. Like, do you, again, I know we can't talk specifically about your sale, um, but have you got a sense of what you had heard in the marketplace of, of software companies, what they were trading at on multiple of, of annual recurring revenue? Like what was your, what was the range you'd sort of heard about in the, in the public? Yeah. So um, it's anywhere from six to eight times ARR was kind of the, the benchmark. Um, again, this is software. And so it's trading on sometimes silly multiples. If you think about uh, bottom line, but, but yeah, it was anywhere from six to eight times ARR. In our case, you know, again, we had, we had not fixed the sales and marketing group completely, but we had a pipeline. So that was part of the, the sale as well. The, the valuation part of it was, this is, this is your, are the opportunities we have in our sales pipeline. This is where we are, right? So this is the, the untapped revenue potential that we have. Uh, and that was part of the value as well. Six to, six to eight times ARR. I mean, we've done a lot of these uh, episodes with software companies and I would have, I would, I would have thought that was a, a, a quite a bit larger software company, but in your, you were getting the sense that it was, it was sort of worth that in a, um, in a smaller company. What was your sort of data point for that? Or how did you kind of discover that? Um, well, it's, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm walking because I'm plugging in. Uh, it, it's not just the, the, the data point. For me, part of it was being able to um, prove the value without necessarily looking at a financial model. And that required mm -hmm. a lot more a lot more, you know, conversation on my part um, and a lot more trust on the part of the potential buyers to kind of look at, again, what we had, what we were building and assign a value to it. And then at the end of the day, it's a negotiation, right? So you're not always going to get what you want and you're not always going to get um, what you think everything is worth. You just have to be able to, to articulate your value and show it. And so did you, did you use a, um, an intermediary or an M&A professional or a business broker to kind of go to these private equity companies? Did you, did you go direct? We went direct and, and it's because of the size. You know, I, I told the board, if the CFO and I couldn't do it ourselves, you know, we would ask for help. But a company as small as ours, I, I, I knew, again, I'd been the acquirer, I've been the acquirer, you know, and I've been the acquired uh, in both sides of that. So... I was like, I, I know that Deloitte's going to ask these questions and Wilkie Farr is going to ask these questions and the investment bankers, and I know how to manage all of that. And so I really, the CFO and I did the due diligence ourselves because we really focused on the, the uh, at the end of the day, the best result for the investor. What was your reaction from the private equity companies you approached? How, what, did they fall in love with, you know, open arms or what was their reaction? There, I would say um, they fell in love with the fact that I was brought in 
as a, you know, to, to turn the company around. They saw the work that we had done in the short period of time that we had done it. I think they loved that part. Um, I think the product sold itself because the team has done such a great job creating a very valuable uh, piece of software. So I think the product was, was, they were in love with that. I think for some of the potentials that ended up not, you know, going further, the sales and marketing were not where I wanted it to be. It was kind of the last leg uh, in the table. And, you know, again, if I had it to do over again, I would have done that sooner rather than later. But I think part of it, they couldn't get their arms around the future um, wasn't always, because I hadn't proven it yet. So part of that, that was the, the drawback was, well, you haven't actually created that sales and marketing team that you want. And I was like, right, because I need investment to do that. And so that's going to be the job of the new owners. And ultimately, that's, that's you know, how it happened. But um, they certainly questioned it, and, and rightfully so, because we hadn't accomplished everything we set out to do yet. How many potential acquirers did you approach? Um, Ten-ish. And how many of those sort of expressed genuine interest? Three. Three or four. Got it. Yeah. And the three or four, what, what was the, the strategic value they were, they were looking at? Or were they simply financial buyers looking for a, a steady flow of income? Um, there, were no, there was maybe one financial buyer um, that I, would have, I eliminated pretty early on. The others were strategic buyers. And I think that was important for this business to have a strategic buyer because that's ultimately, you know, what, what we needed was somebody that was going to believe in the future of it, not just what we had necessarily, necessarily delivered. Up to in what point. way was, in what way was your business strategic? Like how, how did you see it fitting with another? Um, it was strategic in the sense that, you know, again, we ended up, um, the buyers were all buyers in the behavioral health space. Again, so there's a lot of private equity and venture capital firms in the United States that are big into this behavioral health space. And I think our value was we had figured some things out that our competitors had not. Um, like what? Well, like the practice management software that we built, the claims management software that we built is the best in the industry. And, and it, they don't stay in business if they don't get paid. <laughs> and so we prioritized a lot of our software development around that part of it, the practice management part. And I think that was truly a value. When, when, you know, when we showed it to the three or four that ultimately ended up being legitimate, you know, potential buyers, we got a lot of wows from the practice management because it's, it was comp it's comprehensive, it's the best in the industry, and it's a differentiator uh, in the space because, again, the therapist can't get paid, the therapist doesn't stay in business. What exactly do you mean by practice management? So practice management is, uh, it's really claims management. So it's everything from the billing to collecting the cash from either the insurance company or the parent or guardian of the patient um, to managing accounts receivable. You know, so it's, it's really everything that, that's re that it takes to manage a pra an ABA therapy practice. Um, so it's, you know, the, the private equity term is revenue cycle management. It's basically everything from, again, from billing to collections to accounts receivable to man everything you need to manage your business. Scheduling, yeah. all of that. Okay, so you've got these three companies that have a, a stake in the behavioral health space, interested in the business, in particular because of the way you do claims and practice management. How did you, how did you create a 
a kind of bidding war uh, because you, you had these multiple bidders. Did you, did you sort of drive them towards a date where you would be accepting offers or did you, did they bring you offers at different times? How did you structure that? Yeah, I ultimately, I, I drove them to a date um, because as with all potential um, buyers and negotiations, if you don't give a deadline, you know, it can go, it can go on for, for ever. Um, so we had a date in mind where we thought we could get the potential buyers comfortable enough with the product, the people, you know, the processes to make a decision or not. And so we drove it, we did it by dates. And, and when that date came, what was the result? Um, that date came and the result was that I had the opportunity to choose who I thought was the best new ownership group. And it was the, it was the last one I would have picked going into the negotiation because it was our, it was the owners of our largest competitor. So one of the things that happened in the space, I was appointed in February of 2018, uh, the new CEO and our largest competitor appointed a new CEO similar to, to, the, to the situation of Pathfinder in July of 2018. Um, and so he was brought in to do some of the similar things that I was brought in to do because of the whole founder scenario that we talked about earlier, the entrepreneur DNA. And so you know, go, going in, you're like, but I compete against this, you know, this group every day. But as I learned more about him, the new CEO, I learned about their business, their culture. It, we were aligned, and that, that was the most important thing for me was that the cultures align because, again, if the, success, if the acquisition is going to be a success, it's going to be because cultures match, right? How and, many, yeah, for sure. Yeah. How many offers did you actually get? You got one from a direct competitor. Did you, did you get a, a letter of intent from the other two? I, I got uh, one other. Yeah, I got, we, got, we were down to two. Um, and interestingly, the third one that I thought was going to um, be in the mix wanted more of the sales and marketing piece done, and they couldn't get comfortable that, you know, that that was going to come. And so um, they opted out. We, we agreed that they opted out, that they should opt out. But, but yeah, having a choice was, was important. Uh, the other was piece the that was important for me was that we saved the employees. We, we only lost a very few uh, employees. And that was important to me as well to save as many jobs as I could. Yeah, for sure. What was the, the board's reaction to the two offers? What did they have sort of a qualitative reaction to what was on offer? Um, they were ultimately, they were thrilled that, you know, that we got the, the deal done, that we did it with a minimal amount of cost, you know, from, from an, didn't hire an intermediary. And that we were saving jobs. You know, again, I was lucky that I walked into a business that had a supportive board of directors and a supportive investor group. And when they, and when I said, this is the right, this is the right choice, they supported me 100% and said, we agree. And, and we moved on and they, they were, um, they were great. I mean, it, it was, there was nothing negative about it. It was really a positive experience on both sides. What were the, the kind of major, differences between the two offers? Obviously, there was a difference in, in offer price, I'm assuming. Were there other kind of big uh, uh, things to look out for? And, and, and if you can't say specifically, um, 
it, you, you, we could just talk about it in a more general sense of, you know, if, if you were advising me, an entrepreneur, and I had two offers on the table for my business, um, cultural aspects aside for a moment, assuming there's a cultural fit, or I believe there to be a cultural fit between both buyers, what would you coach me to look for in, in the two offers that I'm comparing in, you know, it's, again, I'm trying to get into this, the kind of specific deal terms or gotcha clauses or things that yeah. you, you'd coach me to look out for. Yeah. So if, if I was coaching you on, uh, and, and I have done this, by the way, so um, I've had some, some experience in, in doing it, is you look out for a couple things. One is certainty. So if one offer has a certainty aspect, a certain aspect to it, meaning it's a cash deal or it's, you know, um, on an anniversary day, it's X and, and it's a certain amount. That's important. I think rolling over equity is not always uh, a good, a good move for an entrepreneur or something. What do you mean by rolling over of, equity? You know, so if you, if the shareholder, if part of the deal had been structured like, okay, this shareholder will remain a shareholder in the new company that just adds some risk and uncertainty to your future. And I don't, I think that's, not as attractive. If you're an entrepreneur and you're selling your business, I think you should look for, you should minimize the amount of uncertainty in what you're ultimately going to receive because nobody gets everything up front, right? You're, there's always going to be some, you know, element of they either want you to stick around for some period of time, right, to ensure a smooth transition or they want um, customer retention. There's going to be something about the deal that, that has some level of uncertainty or risk to it, I think you want to minimize that. Again, if I'm advising you, I'm going to tell you, you know, if it's if it's a hundred dollars now, uh, certain, or it could be two hundred, but there are these seven things that have to happen. You're better off to really think about, you know, the, taking what what you know for a fact, unless you're one hundred percent certain that you're going to be able to deliver on all those seven things that they want in order to get more money, you know, a year down the road or two years down the road. So I think that's an important piece. What proportion of a deal would would you kind of expect to get in terms of sort of in certain terms, i.e. cash or or you know certainty around payments? Like are we talking at least half the value, 75%? Like what what would you be at what point would you kind of raise a red flag and think, yeah, it's a little bit high of a proportion to be at risk? Yeah, I think you want at least 50, you want more than 50% uh, certainty, I think. Um, you know, again, it depends on the business. It depends on what you're selling, and it depends on um, who your buyers are. But if, if there's 75% at risk, that's a red flag. You don't want to entertain that. There's too much uncertainty, and some of it might be out of your control. That's the other thing to think about. How much of the, the uh, clauses are things that you can directly control yourself or, you know, your team? And how much is subject to, you know, market cycle, environment, somebody else making the decision like a customer, um, you know, because customers can say, I don't like you and I'm leaving. And it has nothing to do with your product. It just, you know, or, or the deal itself. So I think if it's more than you want at least 50 percent, a little more than 50 percent, you want absolutely certain. Now, I know in, in your deal, we can't talk specifically about uh, price. C- could you talk at all about um the relative difference between the two, were they 
kind of aligned around value or was it wildly kind of different? Um, kind of, do, you, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. And, and yes, I do. And, and um, they weren't that different in the sense that, it, you know, it's interesting, private equity firms behave similarly, um, especially those in the same industry, right, in the behavioral health space in our case. But they weren't wildly different. Um, and, and I wouldn't expect them to be um, in most cases. Well, because they're, it's, a small, it's a small world. Um, and they're all, they're in the same industry, the same space. They were different, definitely different, but they weren't wildly different um, because they structure these deals all the time. They invest in these companies all the time. If you're dealing with an experienced venture capitalist or private equity firm, they're going to have their three categories or whatever it is of, uh, of, of deal terms, and they're going to be pretty consistent across the board. I, again, it's a small world. They all know each other. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And so what was it that tipped the balance in favor of the ultimate acquirer? Why, why did you choose them? Um, you're probably not going to like this answer, but uh, a lot of it was my, my gut. You know, you take information in through your brain, you know, and, and the, the data all comes in. And, but you ultimately make decisions with your heart and your gut. And, and I felt like I liked the CEO. I liked the new, uh, the, the private equity group I'd known before. Um, they're, they're, they're trustworthy. Um, I believed when they said they were, you know, that they were going to keep, you know, this many jobs and, and this level of, of uh, certainty for my, for my employees. All of those things tipped it in favor of I made the right decision for this business or for the people. Because, again, the people are, are what's most important to me, um, not just the financial terms, but, but how, you know, I'm, I knew exactly how many mouths I was feeding. I know their kids' names, their dogs' hmm. names. And so that was really important to me was knowing that I, could, that I trusted the new owners and that I believed in what they were going to do in the future. And, that, by the way, so far they've, they've held up their end of the bargain on absolutely everything they, they promised. So it was, it was a heart decision made with some head input, but ultimately it was the right decision that my gut told me I was making the right move. And did your, the venture capitalists that invested in the business prior to it being acquired, did they have preferred rights? Did they have uh, uh, any preference or were their shares, pref shares? I'm assuming they were, that's generally how they invest. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's correct. And, and so how did, the founder who had since exited business, how did, he, how did they feel about the deal when it was, when it was brought to, to the table? The founders were both were very supportive of all of it for the same reasons I just mentioned. Um, you know, it was the right decision for the business and the people and they were, they were both uh, 100% supportive. So again, we were, I feel really blessed that, that I had such a great group of people around me, but um, they knew it was the right decision as well. So they were, they were fine. And again, the strategic value that the acquirers saw in your company was this, uh, this kind of secret sauce around claims management that you'd sort of codified and built into the, into the tool. Uh, that was where you were really uh, kind of leading industry leaders. Is that right? 
It wasn't just that, um, but yes, that was a big piece of it. And the other piece was um, they saw they saw the potential to focus this product, our product, on the small to mid-sized market segments. So they saw two pieces to it. They saw the value in the practice management. They also saw that if, if we took our resources and really geared them toward the small business market, side of the market, you know, uh, that it would, it would drive overall market share. So it was a perfect complement to their product, which really was geared toward the bigger business side of the market. Got it. That's helpful. And as you reflect personally on the deal now, what are, what are some of your feelings about it having had a little bit of water under the bridge? Um, I, I feel as good about it today as I did when we signed the deal, when we inked it, you know, when I accepted the offer. Again, the more I get to know the, the new management team, the more exposure I have with the new CEO and with the group, um, the happier I am <laughs> because and, and, they are. And, and, you know, I just, I guess yeah, what I meant more practically for you personally, do you intend to stay on? Are you, are you employed by the, now the new owners? Is that sort of, or, or oh, are you, you mean make it all over? about me? <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, I mean, I guess, you know, you came into a situation as sort of a professional CEO, not sort of a professional CEO. And, and I, I wonder, is there part of you that now is, is craving doing it all over again? Uh, or, you know, <laughs> Do you feel like you want to stay within the, the fold of this, the existing company? Yeah. So I, I'm too young to retire. Uh, that's for certain. Um, but we'll see. I, I think there's an opportunity. If there's an opportunity here, you know, with the new owners for me to continue to add value um, and contribute and have fun at the same time, I would certainly consider it. Uh, but I always keep my options open. I mean, if the, the next one comes along that, that needs what I can offer. I'm certainly going to entertain that as well. So right now I'm happy. Um, I'm happy with it. I would absolutely consider staying on if, if they have a, a role for me and if they have a need for me to fill. Got it. Well, Tina, this is great. I know people are going to want to reach out, um, maybe offer you a job. <laughs> so what's the best way for people to connect with you? Is there, is, uh, are you a Twitter? Are you an Instagram? Are you on LinkedIn? What's your, what's your preferred means of saying hi? I definitely am on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably my preferred. And, okay, great. and, and thank you for saying that. I look forward to hearing, um, look forward to hearing from, from whomever and, and uh, whatever, whatever next fun role I can, can contemplate, I'll look forward to it. Well, it sounds like you got your hands full with, uh, with the current business and, and some great uh, partners. So it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for joining us, Tia. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow. 
W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.